My book recommendation for this week is one that I, it just came out, I think, like two weeks ago, very, very, very recently. Um, it is a book that I was surprised by because I know the author and I did not know him to be somebody to write this kind of book. Has anybody seen this book before? It's by Ross Douthat. Ross Douthat is a opinion columnist with the New York Times. Uh, he's sort of their token conservative, and for some people he's not conservative. Some people think he's not at all. He, but for the New York Times, he's a conservative. Uh, he's a Roman Catholic, and apparently about five years ago, he was bitten by a tick, and it had Lyme. And so he, he got the, the bacteria that, that comes along with Lyme disease, and he contracted Lyme. He was treated for it, uh, received the antibiotics that you're supposed to get, and then his symptoms persisted and persisted for about five years. And I don't know, I would, I'm going to raise my, ask for hands. Have any of you had an experience with Lyme disease, had someone in your family with Lyme, um, gone through it yourself? All right, we've got a few. Um, apparently, if we were in the Northeast, like everybody's hands would be up because apparently in the Northeast, this is just a huge problem, uh, the, these ticks with Lyme disease. Anyway, that doesn't sound like a very exciting proposition for a book. You might think that doesn't, I don't know if I want to listen to somebody say my body hurts all the time for a bunch of pages. Here's why I started reading this. Well, A, I know Ross to be a thoughtful person. Even if you disagree with his political views on different things, and even if you just find yourself not in agreement with him, um, he's a thoughtful guy. His columns tend to be very thoughtful, tend to have a theological focus of some kind, and I tend to appreciate what he says. So reading this book, though, is basically telling about his family over the course of these five years. I don't typically read memoirs. I don't typically read somebody journaling out their life and what, what happens, but... This is an interesting book because as somebody who doesn't experience chronic pain, I, I don't experience chronic pain. I don't know what it's like to wake up every day and feel pain. Uh, I don't know what it's like to go to experience pain and have no hope that the pain's going to go away. Um, part of the reason why you read other people's writings is because you need to get some taste of what it's like to be somebody else, what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And so I wanted... After I, I didn't know that the last five years he'd been suffering like this. But when he talks about the kind of pain he, he's in, he talks about being doubled over. He talks about his chest contracting and feeling like he's constantly having what he imagines a heart attack to be. Uh, going to the ER repeatedly, thinking that he's dying. Um, there's one point that I related with a great deal where he talked about having such anxiety, thinking that he wouldn't see his family the next day. Um, so there's a lot in here that in some ways maybe I resonated with, but in other ways I didn't. But I was going to read, I just wanted to read you just a section about, about pain, because this book caused me to reflect a great deal on pain and suffering. Um, he said that he always, he basically says he always imagined chronic illness to be sort of like a constant fatigue or a constant ache that eventually lightens up. And he said this, the reality was pain that didn't let you relax, let, you alone, let alone sleep. Pain that made your body feel like a cage around your consciousness. Tension, always tension. The opposite of a Victorian lady picturesquely swooning on a couch. All this was an education and experience of what it meant to be an embodied human, human being that could be endured but not really explained to somebody 
whose body was still a home, a cooperator, and a friend. Then he talks about what it did to his relationship to other people when he would open up about his pain. He said this, The only place to turn for real solidarity was the secret fraternity into which I had been initiated. Not just Lyme patients, but the much larger group to whom a confession of chronic illness opened up. In my wanderings for work, in my visits to green rooms and radio studios, in chance encounters and long online conversations... I constantly proved the truth of Scott Alexander's observation. There was extraordinary suffering everywhere. People dealing with pain of every variety, with conditions diagnosable and not, that had been largely invisible to me until I came into the country, cleared the filter, and experienced that misery myself. And then I listened to this next part as somebody who's in my 30s. Uh, but also who is around people who are not necessarily in their 30s. Listen to what he says. I had made the journey in my 30s earlier in life than many of my fellow countrymen. In general, the conversations I had were with men and women a little older than me, whose 40s and 50s had taught them about all the things that can go wrong with a human body, all the places pain can enter and make itself a home. For the young, intense physical suffering was a lightning strike. For older people, it gradually became the weather. And... I don't know which of you, I know some of you experience a great deal of pain. For some of you, pain may be the weather. It may be the norm. Uh, and you may not feel like you can talk to people about it because no one will take it seriously. Um, this is that, for that reason, I think this was really an important book for me to read. He, he is a Christian. Uh, like I say, he's of the Roman Catholic variety. I won't uh, dig too much into that necessarily, but... He talks about what God meant for him, what it meant to know God in the midst of really, really, really deep suffering. Because he's writing for this educated, elite, fancy pants, New Yorker, you know, audience, sort of. These are the people that tend to read him. And so he talks about God, and I, he, does, he has very little theological reflection in this book. He has some, but most of this book is about trying to figure out how to make his Lyme disease go away, or at least how to make the symptoms go away. And he does some wacky stuff in the process, right? He radiates his body with, like, vitamin C. He tries these weird salt treatments. Uh, he gets this machine called a Rife machine that creates these frequencies that are supposed to shatter the bacteria. Um, he's desperate. And he'll try the weird stuff because the medical establishment doesn't take seriously chronic Lyme disease. They just think it doesn't, it's not real, that it's in your head. So they want to get you a psychiatrist. And he's like, he wrote this book to basically say, I think I'm not crazy. Please take me seriously. Uh, I hope some doctors will take seriously chronic Lyme disease. But he tries all this wacky stuff. Um, at one point, he lays out on the floor of a church and he just cries out to God and he, he cries out to Mary and all the saints Wish he hadn't done that. He cries out to Mary and all the saints. He calls out to, and he just does everything that he can think of because that's the kind of pain that he's in. But he talks about how God relates to what he goes through. And he says this, to believe that your suffering is, well, first he talks about the fact that it's so strange. Everybody wants to talk about why, why bad things happen to people at all. And he says, the strange thing is we live in an age where people have more comfort than ever. We have less pain than ever. We have less medical problems than ever because we know how to combat it. And yet the ancients were not thinking to themselves, how is it that anything bad happens? It's, it's in an era where we have it so good that we're perturbed by such lack of control over the universe, really. And then he says this. He says, to believe that your suffering is for something, 
that you are being asked to bear up under it, that you're being in some sense supervised and tested and possibly chastised in a way that's ultimately for your good, if you can only make it through the schooling, all this is tremendously helpful to maintain simple sanity and basic hope. If God brought you through it, he to it, he can bring you through it. Read an aphorism in one of the doctor's offices I frequented. Uh, I need distillation of what I wanted and more importantly needed to believe in order to get up every morning and just try to hold my world together for another shattered seeming day. A crutch for weak-minded people. That is how the noted philosopher Jesse the Body Ventura once described religion. Uh, my pre-illness self would have disputed that description, but my sickened self would merely give it a tweak. Absolutely religion is a crutch. And it is not only useful for the weak of mind, but for anyone dealing with severe illness. You had better believe I leaned on my belief in a silent, invisible God more in those miserable months, that miserable summer, than on any hope or notion or idea in any prior portion of my life. So he basically leans into it and says, yep, God was my crutch. And that does not mean that he's not there. It means I needed him. So... Anyway, if that sounds interesting to you at all, if you have, I, I was reading this thinking if I was de- dealing with chronic illness or chronic constant pain, I think I would like to hear from someone else who came through it. He's not 100% better. It sounds like he's always going to be battling this Lyme infection in his life. Um, but he did get to a place where he felt hopeful enough that he could write this. So I'm going to pass this around if you're interested. Um, Light profanity in the book. If it was a movie, it'd be rated PG-13. So there's my, that's my first real book that I've recommended that's just not straight up just a theology book or a Christian book. So I won't do that very often, but every now and then. Um, so our, the book that we're, we've come to now is the book of Isaiah. We are now in the major prophets. We are in the major prophets. Book of Isaiah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the prophetic books. I think the prophetic books get neglected. I think the book, prophetic books get neglected for a number of reasons. Um, I think that it is an, the, the prophets are intimidating to people. I think that the prophets are scary. We know that there's a lot of condemnation and hard language in the major prophets. Um, Part of the reason we avoid the major prophets is that we're unfamiliar. They are, we are unfamiliar with the historical setting. Each time we open one of the major prophets, we go, which part of Israel's history are we in again? What am I about to read? Um, what is going on in the narrative when I get to this? And so because of that, we just say, you know, I think I'll just go read John. Yeah, I think I'll just go read Romans. Uh, and then we think, no, not Ezekiel. There are turning wheels. There are some, there's animals with four, four faces in there. Uh, there I'm, I'm going to steer away. Uh, so we go to the lighter material, the, the stuff that we kind of just, it's naturally easier to navigate. Um, so, and the, the style's difficult to follow. Again, you've got to kind of have an idea about when does the deportation to Babylon happen? Is this book before the North Falls or after the North Falls? And there's a lot to manage. And so because of that, uh, we kind of steer away from it, maybe. Uh, or, or we find the language obscure. We have trouble understanding it. We also know that there are people with strange interpretations of these books. We know that there are people who make mountains out of molehills from the Old Testament text that uh, we just think, you know, this place is so weird. Let's let the, let's let the, the pastors 
spend time in the major prophets and we'll sort of go into the kiddie pool. I understand that mentality. Um, However, the major prophets are books that we should not avoid. Um, They're part of God's word. God included them. One of the things I sometimes like to ask when I come to a tricky text or a text that I just can't imagine what it really means. Sometimes you ask the question, how would this, what would we be lacking if this wasn't here? If we, if we, if this verse that I am having trouble with wasn't in the text, what would I not know about God or what would we be missing? Sometimes that question helps clarify what's really there that's really important that we actually do need it for. You know how much stuff we would be losing if we lost Isaiah, for example? Just bonkers amounts of things that we take for granted, things we believe about God that we find in the book of Isaiah. Could you, I, I can't imagine at this point now, and I just, I, I think it was last week that I mentioned The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, I can't imagine at this point in my Christian life not, no, not knowing about Isaiah's encounter with God in the temple. The train of his, te- uh, his, his uh, robe filled the temple. Imagine a world where the holiness of God was not expressed in that terrifying moment in Isaiah. I, I, I would be so bummed out. Um, there's, there's stuff that we're going to talk about that we would just lose. Um, without, the, without the prophets, we lose just a massive period of God's revelation. Imagine if we didn't have the major prophets or the minor prophets. Basically, the entire period after the narrative of Second Chronicles, there's a return from Babylon that gets decreed, and we wouldn't know anything about really what's going on prophetically in Israel. What are God's people hearing? What is God telling them about what they're going through? Um, are they ever going to come back? What's the hope? What are they supposed to be setting their eyes on? And we would all be left to speculate. And we've already talked about that. We don't want to do that. So God has given us this picture into this really huge period of his revelation, stuff that he did for his people, things we really want to know. So I hope that you are convinced the major prophets are important, that you really do need to know them, and, and that they are absolutely worth our attention. Um, so when we're talking about... Uh, the book of Isaiah, we're talking about a book that introduces Isaiah as a prophet. What's a prophet? A prophet is, is a called one, uh, a seer, a messenger of the Lord. Specifically, a prophet is not just somebody who talks to God. A prophet is somebody who hears from God and is commanded to communicate that message to others. So, for example, um, I'm going to suggest to you that Moses is actually the first prophet in the Bible. Uh, even though you've got other people talking to God, right? You've got Abraham, for example, a man that talks to God, who hears from God, and yet he's not called to, to do the work of a prophet. He's not called to do that. Instead, he, he hears from God and he speaks to the Lord and he hears the promises of God, but he's not meant to fulfill the function of a prophet. Um, but even if you really wanted to argue about what a prophet is, what a prophet does, and whether Moses is the first one or not, at least we understand that a prophet is meant to speak on behalf of God to God's people. Um, by the way, almost always the prophet is deeply reluctant. You go through scripture and you just look at the prophets that are there. And they tend to live miserable lives. They tend to be persecuted. They tend to have very, very, very difficult existences. And so um, to be a prophet is not something that you would want to seek out. It's not something that you would want. Um, 
Yeah, the, the job description is like, must be willing to get hurt, must be willing to get stoned, must be willing to have people accuse you of terrible things. Um, just the, it's a long list. It's a job, job description that nobody would actually want. And so Isaiah comes in as just one of this line of many. So we're going to meet a lot of prophets uh, in the coming weeks as we work our way through the Old Testament. And um, I think you'll start to see that theme emerge, that these prophets do not live good lives. Um, so what is Isaiah? Isaiah is the first of the major prophets. Sometimes Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because it has these prophecies of the Messiah so frequently throughout. You know, when we're getting ready for the month of December and we're going to focus on the incarnation, my, I instinctively go to Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Passages that talk about Emmanuel, God with us, these, prom- these promises of a coming Savior, um, they come out of the text. They come from Isaiah. Um, he ministered for, what's that? I thought I heard a sound. Uh, he ministered for 59 years, so he's got a pretty long ministry. Uh, very agonizing ministry, bringing difficult words. Right? One of the things he asks in Isaiah 6, 11, he says, how long, Lord? This is going to be a long, hard ministry. 59 miserable years. <laughs> um, a ministry that leaves him groaning, that leaves him wishing that he could just die already. Um, we know a few things about Isaiah, just his personal life. We know that he had a wife. We know that he had at least two children. We know that he lived in Jerusalem. And we know that he began ministering around 740 B.C. 740 B.C. So at this point, you still have the northern kingdom. Would you, does anybody remember, when does the, the northern kingdom fall? 722. 722, that's good, yeah. So 722 is when the northern kingdom falls. He doesn't live long enough to see the southern kingdom fall. He's not that old. He's got a, a ministry, a long ministry, but not that long. Um, so his, his ministry actually starts in the year that King Uzziah died. So we know the year that King Uzziah died, 740. So that's when his ministry starts. Um, he ministered during the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and probably during Manasseh. Um, and that's because he, he talks about the death of Sennacherib, and he died in 681, which is when Manasseh was reigning. So he probably uh, ministers during the reign of five different kings. So pretty impressive, long record. Some of these kings do not last very long. Uh, he lived through the northern kingdom's destruction. So remember, the northern kingdom is destroyed by which nation? The Assyrians, right? Nineveh, the Ninevites. Uh, they come, they crush the northern kingdom. He ministers through that. In 722, northern kingdom falls. Damascus is a nightmare. There's cannibalism. There's desperation. Um, and that would have been 18 years into his ministry. So not even halfway through, the north falls. More of his ministry is spent after the northern kingdom falls than before. Um, that's roughly just a sketch of the life of Isaiah. So he lives through the fall of the north, and he's constantly warning the south, hey, this could happen to you too. You guys aren't immune. Just because you guys aren't, don't think of yourself as being as bad or as idolatrous as the northern kingdom doesn't mean that you're out of the woods. More, primarily to the south. Um, although he has messages that are relevant to the north as well. 
So if we're talking about structure, you can honestly break Isaiah in half. This is a classic break for uh, the uh, structure for Isaiah. Um, this is nothing original to me, of course. Um, I think most people recognize that after Isaiah 39, the book takes a turn. If people are picking their favorite parts of Isaiah, they tend to pick the second half of Isaiah. They tend to say, yeah, I really like the second half of Isaiah. There's a lot of comfort there. There's a lot of kind words, promises looking forward. First half of the book has a lot of warnings, a lot of uh, more of a negative part of the book, to be honest. Um, So the first 39 chapters written during the rise of Assyria, anticipating the fall of the northern kingdom. Chapters 40 through 66 are written after the fall of the north, but anticipating there's an exile that's coming for the south. So he's getting the people in Jerusalem and in Judah ready for very hard seasons. He's preparing the soil of the hearts of God's people so that when they get taken away, when they go into exile, um, they're going to be prepared to endure. That's, that's much of his work. So there's very, it's a very forward-looking book. And this is, this is a very forward-looking book as well, but looking forward to bad things, looking forward to judgment, looking forward to restoration here. So let's talk about themes in this book. I'm going to look. Oh, yeah. Uh, themes in the book. So big theme of the book. Big, big, big theme of the book. Um, the holiness of God. Really, really hard to read Isaiah and not convey this, especially when we get to Isaiah chapter 6, which we will look at in just a minute. We're going to spend some special time on Isaiah 6. God makes the prophet, he makes the people really aware of his holiness and their unholiness. So they are just constantly contrasted with the Holy One of Israel. If you read Isaiah and you come away feeling great about yourself, then you haven't read deeply enough and you haven't read it with a critical enough of an eye on yourself because this is a book that humbles. Um, Second theme of this book is God as Savior and Redeemer. Um, Isaiah constantly is hitting on this theme. Even though he judges Israel, he won't abandon them, right? This is a book where you're constantly saying, hey, Northern Kingdom, you guys are going to be crushed. You're idolaters. You guys worship yourselves. You worship created things. You don't love the Lord. Uh, you're going to fall. And yet, even, even here, when he's, he, when he's talking to the North, he's telling them, turn to me. Come to me. These words of judgment are actually words of grace. Actually being smacked and woken up from this stupor that they're in is God being kind to them. It's God extending grace to them. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of the, uh, uh, it's God's, God's patience leading them to repentance. 18 years of his ministry is, is sent ministering to the North saying, don't do it, don't do it, turn to the Lord. Um, so I want you to see graciousness even where you see judgment in this book. Because what would be ungracious or what would still be just is if he just crushed them. If he just let Assyria come, didn't interpret the event for them, didn't tell them what happened. He could have just let it happen and just said, look, I'm done with you guys. I'm wiping you off the face of the planet. But instead, he spends 18 years saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Come to me. Follow me. Um, So I want you to see that. But I also want you to see that he's constantly making promises in this book as well. So he's, uh, the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. I mean, the prophet himself has this name that just says, um, the Savior is coming from you. 
Um, God is the one who's going to be the rescuer. Um, as much as we think of the prophets as being uh, people who speak words of judgment, we need to see the grace that is just, it's just marbled throughout all of this. Um, God is called Redeemer more than 12 times in the second half of the book. So when you get to the second half of the book, this is one of the, I didn't talk about this authorship, but the, 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 uh, the critical scholars, they want to look at this book and see, say, hey, see, there's at least two authors for this book. You've got the first author who must be, have been angry and who must have been grumpy. And he wrote the first half of Isaiah. And then later on, far later, maybe even hundreds of years later, they say, that he sat down and wrote, well, look, this book's a little rough. Why don't we fill the second half with these sweet promises? Um, and that is, that's what these critical scholars say. They don't have a textual reason why they should think so, except for the fact that you have stuff like God is Redeemer 12 times in the second half. He gets called Redeemer a lot in the second half disproportionately to the first half. That's not proof that there's another author. That just proves that he uses the word Redeemer in the second half an awful lot. Um, it also means that there have been pretty drastic world events between chapter 39 and chapter 40, right? The fall of the northern kingdom is a massive event. And you could imagine how the people living in the south, living in Jerusalem, would A, feel extremely insecure, knowing that this buffer between them and Assyria no longer exists, right? It's just a wasteland now. The Assyrians can just roll right into Jerusalem if they wanted to. You would feel very insecure, right? You'd feel very insecure if the North Koreans took over Canada and there was no border, like, everybody every day would be talking about how there was a, a North Korean sighting. Um, we would, there would be paranoia everywhere. Uh, similar, trying to... I noticed we probably have a new preacher. Because the last two Sundays have been talking a lot about Timothy, and the old preacher was always talking about Matthew. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it must, be, it must be a totally different minister. Um, <laughs> Um, but he's speaking to these people who need reassurance. They need to hear the promises now because they're, they feel even less secure than they did before. Another theme of this book is the remnant. I like the word remnant. It's a really good word. Not only does it say basically, hey, there's still someone who's left, but it's also forward looking. The idea of a remnant is that somebody's also coming back. Like, it's, uh, the remnant is like there's somebody left and it's going to get bigger and there's going to be more again someday. Um, so I love remnant. I think it's a super word. Um, those who are left, what do they do? They get the promises of God. There's destruction coming, but the remnant's real. They inherit the promises. Um, Isaiah kicks off talking about this remnant right away. Right? In Isaiah 1.8, he says, If the Lord had host, had not, of hosts had not left us survivors, a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Um, some translations say if the Lord had not left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. And that was kind of what I was saying about the northern kingdom. God could have done that. He could have just flattened everybody and said, no, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to interpret anything. You know, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did not get an, a book of Isaiah written about what happened to them. You know, um, instead, God just rained down the hellfire. Right. He just did it. Out of the remnant will come a holy people, though. That's one of the themes of this book. God's going to do something great out of this destruction, out of this judgment. Um, another theme is the servant of the Lord. A lot of people are called God's servant in the text. 
You have Isaiah referred to as God's servant. You have Cyrus of Persia, who's called God's servant. Uh, You have Israel being called God's servant in the book. You have a lot of people, a lot of nations or individuals who are spoken of as being servants of God. So when you see these, they, they call these sections servant songs. There are multiple servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And when you're reading these servant songs, understand this, that there is what I call a double fulfillment. Um, and I'm saying I call because I can't remember who I got it from. <laughs> I can't remember if it's G.K. Beale or somebody else now. I'm such a hodgepodge of teachers that I, I don't remember who it is anymore. Um, but I call it double, it's a double fulfillment because there's an immediate sense in which this comes true. There's a promise that gets made. And then there's an ultimate sense in which it also is equally true. So one of the servant songs we're going to look at this morning, <laughs> I say that, we'll see. One of the servant songs we're going to look at is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a servant song with a double fulfillment. So we'll talk about what that means. Um, another theme eschatology we think of eschatology as being okay what's the roadmap of the end times you know how do the pope and barack obama shake hands and and bring it all in right we talked about this this morning um that's what people sometimes think of when they think of eschatology right pin the tail on the antichrist let's find out who it is so we can get him before he destroys the world you know if only we knew which baby was baby hitler we could do something about it you know Well, we can't do that. Um, That's not what eschatology is really about. When you're talking about the word eschatology, you're talking about last things. That's what the word actually means, just doctrine of last things. Where is everything going? What's going to happen with all of this stuff? Questions like that. That's, That's what is the direction of the universe? What is the direction of what God has done and what he is doing? That's eschatology. And it's a big theme in Isaiah. Um... What is going to happen with Israel? Israel's going to become a place of peace and prosperity. Even though they're going to get flattened and taken away into exile, there's going to be peace and prosperity. That's, that's an amazing message for um, them, them to be preaching, uh, for Isaiah to preach. Um, in this coming kingdom, what does Isaiah tell us? He says there's going, to be, uh, there's going to be worship and there's going to be law, and those are going to be central. And he says one of Jesse's descendants is going to sit on the throne. So he's, he's already setting us up for Jesus. And he is taking us to Jesus frequently. You're going to frequently be able to think about places in Isaiah where Jesus is being held out to us and promised to us so that we can actually get him when he comes. Um, And so there's this very big future expectation uh, that someone's coming who's better than David. Uh, And ultimately, of course, that's Jesus. So when we're talking about double fulfillment, that's what we're talking about. Um, so let's talk about a couple of passages that are noteworthy uh, in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I think most of you do probably, unless you left it out on the playground, I hope you didn't. Um, yeah, let's, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to look for a volunteer to read the first seven verses of Isaiah 6. All right, Mike's got, Mike's got it. In the year the king of Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one 
called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs, uh, tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for this is one of these passages that is just the perfect encapsulation of a close encounter with God. Um, and when I say close encounter, I think modern people have this deep yearning for something like this. I really believe that. You guys remember close encounters of the third kind? There is a religious awe over that entire movie. Like, by somebody who is not interested, I don't think Steven Spielberg seems interested in God. But he is just yearning for this close encounter with someone or something greater than himself. And he turns his attention to extraterrestrials, right? And he's obsessed throughout the entire movie. I really think it's, I really think Close Encounters is a religious movie. I don't know if Spielberg knows it's a religious movie. But he, it's like somebody he yearns. What's the end of the movie? The end of the movie. You're all, you have all your goosebumps. They're all poking up, right? Because this thing that he yearned for, he finally gets. And he walks into the light and sort of, spoiler alert, sorry, it's like a 40-year-old movie. Um, older than that, actually. What's that? Yeah, he gets taken up in glory at the end of the movie. I mean, the whole thing is a religious allegory, I think. Um, and his family doesn't understand his obsession with these things. Um, he's like the person that needs to know God and, and wants to know God, but instead he'll settle for space aliens. Um, Isaiah, though, this is a passage of grandeur. This is a passage that reminds you that we shouldn't approach God in this flippant way. God is my pal, sort of, with this sort of God is my pal mentality. It's not that nowhere in the Bible does it say, for example, Jesus says, I have called you friends. It's not like those passages aren't true, and it's also not true that, that we have no peace with God or that we should be afraid of God. But Isaiah 6 reminds us that we should fear God. Yeah. Isaiah 6 reminds us that God is majestic, that his sight, the sight of God, even part of God or some manifestation of God is enough to terrorize this poor young prophet to where he speaks these words of cursing upon himself, right? He sees God's holiness, and instead of feeling warmth, instead of feeling really comforted, he just feels despair and fear, like something you might feel if you were in a horror situation. He feels a horror. He feels a terror. Um, something, uh, it's hard to describe. But you have these other places where um, the gospel, it really is like that, where it's at once appealing and it's repulsive, right? Right? People love the gospel and people hate the gospel. 
Um, the gospel makes demands of them. And that's sort of the God that he meets in Isaiah 6, the God who makes demands of him. I demand that you be holy, Isaiah. And Isaiah, he is not holy. And so he flattens himself out and he's so afraid to even lift his, his face up and look and see what's actually going on. Um, I think that we would really, really, really be missing the gravity of God if we didn't have Isaiah 6. I, you, you'll find it in other places. You find it in Exodus. You find it when they're at the foot of Mount Sinai to a degree. But this almost feels like a closer encounter with God than even Exodus because everybody's hiding. Everybody's standing far off. They see Moses' face under a veil and they're frightened. Um, here, he's as close as anyone ever seems to have ever gotten. Um, really remarkable. Um, Isaiah 6. Um, this, the gospel is something that people hear and they hate what they hear. If you read in John chapter 12, they actually quote from Isaiah 6. Because what happens in Isaiah 6? He says, hey, I'm calling you as my prophet and you're going to give a message to people. And the message is you're going to hear what I say and you're not going to like it and you're going to have hard hearts. And that's what he's going to go and he's going to tell. And, and Isaiah says, wait a minute, my job is to go and preach to people and they're going to intentionally, because of your plan, they're not going to hear what I have to say. And God says, exactly. And so he's got the worst preaching gig ever, right? He's just in this hard, 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 large congregation called Israel. And they don't want to hear anything that he's going to have to say. And the New Testament, they quote that as an explanation for why the people don't believe Jesus. So it's really interesting. Um, Oh, when you read John chapter 12, John chapter 12 says that Isaiah saw Christ seated on the throne in Isaiah 6. Um, that is actually really worth meditating upon. And in fact, I'm, I'm actually not going to push on to Isaiah 53. We'll just, I'll just talk about it, this just a little bit more here. But if you turn in John chapter 12 to John chapter 12, verse 36. Sometimes I rush to the end and I don't need to rush. So we'll just save, we'll save Isaiah 53 for next week. Um, <clears throat> So John 12, 36. So it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Uh, the Lord who has believed what, we, what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. By the way, this is a good passage about the deity of Christ. Oh, John 12. John 12, verse 36. Uh, uh, therefore, therefore, they could not believe. For I, again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So are you looking? John 12. 39. Yeah. Therefore, he could not believe. Gotcha. They could not believe. Now, here's, here is verse 41 is what I want you to fixate on. If you're going to fixate on anything, fixate on verse 41 here. 41. Do this one with the Jehovah's Witnesses the next time they come. This is a good one for the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, okay? Because they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. This is a fantastic verse because, you know, 
You do, you, what do you do with the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your house? You go, let's read John 1, 1 together. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then they go, ah, we have a team of scholars who know better. The Word was a God, right? They change the, the text of the New Testament so that they can sort of suit their doctrine. But they can't do that with this passage because you'd have to change the whole context. You'd have to change everything. So what is John doing here? This isn't Jesus talking. This is John interpreting something about Jesus, right? And he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What did Isaiah see? They saw whose glory? His, his glory. But who is he? Jesus. He is Jesus. So John is telling us that in Isaiah 6, in that moment when Isaiah is face down in the temple and his eyes are full of tears and his mouth is full of curses for himself, in front of him is the glory of Jesus. And so your New Testament writers come in and they say, when you read Isaiah 6, read this as a Jesus passage. Because that is what this is. And it's not the Jesus who is meek and mild and sweet. Instead, this is the Jesus that fills people with terror. This is the Jesus of Revelation, right? This is the Jesus we meet there in the book of Revelation. I think it's great because, you know, again, the text goofiness of the text is something that they have it's harder for somebody to argue with i think what they would probably do is say that he there is not jesus um but they need to show that from the text that that's not the prior person that's being talked about anyway john chapter 12 verse 30 uh verse 41 um and also by the way isaiah is the is where he makes the appeal to explain unbelief right he says let's explain this unbelief this unbelief is happening because of exactly what isaiah was talking about so there's something persistent about these prophecies that are made in Isaiah where they're still going on even here in first century Judah, right? They don't die out um, as soon as this generation that Isaiah writes to. He's like, we're still explaining unbelief as the purpose and the plan of God. Uh, unbelief is still part of the purpose and plan of God, and God is still going to use it in order to bring people to himself. So, yeah, John. In the New Testament, when we deal with Abba Father, does that back things off a little bit? Or is there a different relationship with God as a Christian than there was with Old Testament Jews? Uh, well, there's, it depends on what you think Abba means. If you think that it means Daddy, which is a very common, mm -hmm. very common thing for people to teach today, um, then, you know, just for the record, I don't think Abba means Daddy. There's a really good article by, um, it's a famous article. I could find you the article, but it's called Abba Doesn't Mean Daddy. It's going to be very disappointing to you all if you are used to thinking of Abba as meaning daddy. Uh, it just means father. It's just another form of the name father. So Jesus is still telling us, though, to think of God as father. How many, time, how many times has God spoken of his father in the Old Testament by an individual? I don't think it's there, is it? Ever. Yeah, never in the Old Testament. Here's who uh, God is the father of in the Old Testament, Israel. So he talks of Israel as his child. And then what does Jesus do in the New Testament? He teach Christians, teaches Christians to think of God as their father. 
which is a, a seismic shift from the way that um, God's people were taught to think of God as before. So um, what happened was in like the early 1900s, there, was, there were a number of, of scholars who put forth the idea that Abba is sort of like um, child talk. Like it's sort of a, an Aramaic way of speaking about God as your daddy, but not like the way that a, a person would normally talk, but in like this intimate way. And the problem was there just are not examples in, the, in uh, Aramaic or in the Old Testament of that phrase being used and having it mean anything other than father. Well, so, even, yeah. Even it, 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 with, uh, for Germans, <clears throat> you generally call your father father. There's no diminutive way of doing it on the whole. It doesn't wreck the relationship to call your dead father. No, they call, you call your, your father father. Hmm. You know, you don't have so a daddy of privilege in German. You don't? No. Oh, not in my German. In German. Um, so well, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to stop. And then we'll just pick up here. We'll just pick up here again uh, when we come back next week. Um, what we'll do now is we're going to talk about the servant's song of Isaiah 53. We'll talk about that next week. And then those of you who are really upset about the Abba think, come talk to me after. <laughs> Which is probably like everybody. <laughs> like that, I just like drop that and then go, see ya. Bye, everybody. Well done. Um, Oh, it's James Barr. James Barr is the name of the author who wrote, yeah. Anyway, I have a copy of the article if you really want to read it, but it's really nerdy and has a lot of language stuff. So uh, let me pray for us before we wrap up today. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do get to come to you, that we do get to call you Father. You are the holy God. You are the one who was high and lifted up in the temple. It's amazing to think that Isaiah was setting his eyes upon the very glory of Jesus when he was in the temple. I pray, O oh God, that we would at once see you as holy. And I, I pray that at the exact same time, Lord, that we would not be afraid to approach you. Uh, your son, Jesus, came to steal away our fear, our afraidness of you, so that we would be able to approach you. Um, and so would, would you help us, God, to, to come to you through Christ Jesus, your son. Help us to set our eyes on Jesus, even this very week. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.